United States submarine base at Key West, Florida. The dispatch that quoted President Truman's press secretary, Charles Ross, as saying that President Truman has no knowledge of any secret project by this government that would give substance to the existence of such objects. Ross also said that both the Air Force and the Navy deny that such objects exist. Hi. Hi. Um, hey, what's up? My name is Noelle, and I am, I am actually two-day-old macaroni and cheese from the box with the powdered cheese that has been sitting in the refrigerator getting a little, like a little marinated crust on it, so it's just perfect when you put it in the microwave and reheat it. And I'm Chelsea, and I'm married! Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. I hope all that cheese that you've been eating, vegan cheese, of course, uh, replenishes you from all the tears you cried at my wedding, like a little baby. Um, I don't know if I will. I don't know if I've met my caloric intake to replenish all of that energy that I um, expended on on that day. Yeah, the ugly crying was hilarious. That was honestly the greatest joy of the entire day. You're so welcome. You know, you deserve to laugh as well. And it yeah, was like genuine happy crying. Um, I haven't had like a good, I say I haven't had a good happy cry. Well, like I would say the last time I had like a good cry was actually another recorded moment. And it was here on this podcast <laughs> and um, <laughs> bringing out the best in you. Uh, but you cried harder. I was able to suck it in and laugh by the end of it. But that yeah. was more of a, um, cry of pride and um it was happy but the most of the feeling was pride whereas like this cry on saturday sunday pardon because you guys are freaks um was mostly just happiness mm-hmm. so yeah it was a cute moment um it was also funny i'll mail you a picture of me laughing at you so you can have it forever yeah i'll print it out i uh, trust me i saw i saw also <laughs> i will say despite me literally crying for the entire ceremony hysterically and then having to turn around and take fucking pictures in HD, my face looked okay. Oh, your makeup did not budge. And but you, you could see pretty- my eyes were bloodshot. <laughs> yeah, you could. You could tell. You had like the you had the red undertones of someone who had just yeah. wept openly. So the, the glossed over, <laughs> the glossed over yeah. eye. You were either high as a kite, or you were crying happy tears. And honestly, both can be good. So. Yeah, both can be good. Um, speaking of good, you're running today's episode. What are we talking about? I am talking about. Hawaii. Or you can um, say it like um, how they do on the news stations. Hawaii. Hawaii. There you go. Um, I will say that people who say Hawaii, um, who were born where I was born and mm-hmm. who look exactly how I look, mm-hmm. are the equivalent of the girls who go to Spain and say España when they get yeah. home. And it drives me fucking crazy. The Watts. When the Watts come home. I will say I tried to give it my best in writing everything phonetically, but you are here to correct me because I feel like as someone who lived in Hawaii for a little bit, you probably have more of an ear for how to pronounce things. Um, um, but I'm, we're going to do we're going to do our best. Yes and no. The the thing that always trips me up about the Hawaiian language is um, it has less letters in its alphabet alphabet than um like english but it uses a lot of vowels so it like trips our dumb english brains up yeah but it is just exactly how it's spelled which is like why i think it's one of the if you were raised on the mainland and you went to public school you will look at a hawaiian street and be like huh what the fuck? And it's just because your dumb little brain is like A-E-I-O-U, except you know what I but that's not how it yeah. works. It's not you yeah. don't follow the silly, stupid rules of um English grammar. You just read it as it is. Yeah, I I kind of got that towards the end, but I know that even though I was practicing stuff and listening to the pronunciations, even not and then writing those pronunciations phonetically, I'm still gonna fuck up. But 
Uh, yeah, no, I don't trust me. We went we went to <laughs> public school, so I don't yeah. blame you. Yeah, I am painfully stupid, so we're doing our best. But let's just dive into it. Mm-hmm. So in Hawaii, the term chicken skin describes the goosebumps that accompany a chilling sensation of fear or eeriness. It's a feeling that often precedes an encounter with the island's spectral night marchers, a phenomenon bound to unsettle even the bravest souls. These phantom marchers who are known to be heard long before they are seen, which gives them an even more ominous atmosphere, even kind of scarier than their visual presence. And so, Noelle, I, as someone who's actually lived on Hawaii, Mm -hmm. you are my resident go-to. I'm curious if you ever came across anything at night that you would deem paranormal or if there's anything you heard from native Hawaiians who they would kind of caution you, like what they would caution you against, if anything. Um, well, the only kind of like lore that I was told is kind of the same, like the same shit. I feel like anyone on indigenous land is told like, Mm. um, don't fuck with anything. Don't take anything. Yeah. Don't disrespect anything. Um, don't turn your back on the ocean. Don't disrespect the ocean. Don't disrespect the creatures. And like, in that sense of like, even if you are hunting for food, like pay respects um, to that. But the biggest thing was like, if you ever went up to um, like any, even places like Haleakala, for example, which is the, the once was the volcano, the tippy top of Maui. Um, you don't like take anything like, you know what I yeah. mean? Like it's just bad juju, bad omens in a way, but I never felt anything um, eerie or supernatural. No. Um, I wonder, did you see the like wildly disrespectful video of Je- Jennifer Lawrence that went around a few years ago where she bragged how she went to the sacred rocks of Hawaii and used him to scratch her butt, like Baloo from the Jungle Book, where she was what? just like, "You got a friend in me." Yeah, she was like, "Are you kidding about me?" How funny it was. Yeah, so that out of touch, I was like wondering if um, I can't believe you hadn't heard that before. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing it and being like, "That's fucked up." And she had a little bit of backlash, but I don't think she was ever formally educated on why she was a huge bitch for doing that. But I do think that after that's when she kind of disappeared from the public eye for a few years. And she was like, I just think everyone got sick of me. But she gave like a full (laughs) interview of like thinking it was so funny and thinking she was like, oh, I just eat pizza. I'm a regular girl. It was on the Graham Norton show, which is that annoying British guy. Yeah. And fully, I wonder if we can even just play the audio because like she whole ass leans into just being awful and she really thought that she was just being so cute and adorable this is the quote in a recent interview lawrence told a story about quote butt scratching on rocks that are considered sacred to native hawaiians while shooting the hunger games catching fire in 2012 quote from her there were dot 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 sacred dot 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 rocks i don't know they were ancestors who knows they were sacred and you're not supposed to sit on them because you're not supposed to expose your genitals to them. I, however, was in a wetsuit for this whole shoot. Oh my God, they were so good for butt itching. Waving a glass of white wine at times, unable to speak due to laughter, Lawrence said, quote, one rock that I was butt scratching on came loose and prompted a landslide. And the Hawaiians were like, oh, my God, it's the curse, she said, imitating shaking her fist at the sky. And I'm in the corner going, I'm your curse. I wedged it loose with my ass. Removing black sand or lava rock is thought to cause bad luck under what is known locally as Pele's curse. Isn't that bad? It's like worse than I described. Like, she did a really bad Um, thing. (sighs) And someone retweeted it and said, um, the whitest story ever told. And then the top comment was Jennifer Lawrence. I literally wiped my ass with sacred symbols of Hawaii. Everyone so quirky, so relatable. Oh, super disrespectful, right? Oh, what a fucking bitch, dude. 
That is crazy. Yeah. So just another reason to not like her. Um, Yeah. So I guess not being a girl's girl to Miley. Yeah. Fucking bitch. Um, (laughs) So I guess like, that's what, when I was told like not to take anything like sand and rock or it, the bad luck is the Pele's curse. Yeah. So um, I don't, think you would be super alone then with this topic because I had never heard of what we're going to talk about and I was just curious if you had but I think this is probably something that's a little bit deeper in Hawaiian lore and maybe it's something that you wouldn't scratch the surface on is just like a casual resident or um, a tourist so because Noel and I and many others from the mainland have likely never heard of these things known as the Hawaiian night marchers or hukapoi. Nailed it. Ah, yes. Uh, I was like <laughs> waiting for approval. Um, but for the sake of the podcast episode, though, we're going to refer to the hukapoi mostly as the night marchers because that's also what they are known as. So that is our topic for today. And the approach of these ghostly warriors is announced by a, ser- a series of haunting sounds. So the heavy beat of war drums that reverberate in the pit of your stomach, the raw power of throaty chants, and the eerie call of a conch shell that still echoes in the night air. And a foul, deathly odor may permeate the air, which even heightens the sense of dread. And then a sight of flickering torches sneaking their way through the pitch black also adds to the ominous sign that the night marchers are drawing near. And in the stories passed down through Hawaiian culture, these whisperings of night watchers, the ghostly apparitions of warriors from days long past, persevere through the generations. And these spirits are thought to be once protectors of high-ranking nobility and are believed to emerge on sacred nights to journey to their hallowed grounds. The Ali, or chiefs, commanded great respect when they were alive, and their presence was announced with the sound of the conch shells and rhythmic beating of pahu drums. And the common people knew at that time that they had to cast their gaze downward as the Ali passed, and to do so otherwise would break religious um, and sacred kapu protocol, and even if they would make eye contact, which would mean certain death for them. And this strict tradition underscored the profound divide between the ruling elite and the common folk in ancient Hawaiian society, which is something that we're going to see with the night marchers even today. And the Ali were more than just chieftains. They were revered as the embodiment of divine power or mana in the physical world. And this deep spiritual energy that they possessed was testament to their godlike status among the people. And the very warriors who once safeguarded the Ali and enforced the sacred kapu are thought to carry their roles even beyond death. So they even eternally march alongside the Ali as spectral guardians in the night, continuing to uphold the ancient traditions of their society. And it is said that under the watchful eyes of their gods, these spectral warriors leave their resting places to parade to the sites of old battles or other revered locales, clad in full battle gear and wielding their traditional weapons, and they march floating above the earth, leaving no trace behind. And for anyone who finds themselves in the path of the night marchers, be warned now, because respect is survival. To lie face down is to show the utmost reverence and thus avoid a violent fate. The sacredness of these ancient chiefs is such that to gaze upon certain parts of their being was to invite an immediate and fiery death. And depending on the chief's decrees, their placement within the march would ensure their sacred parts remain unseen. And occasionally the gods themselves are said to join in these nocturnal marches, causing the torches to glow with an even more unusual brilliance. And this presence is often marked by a particular arrangement of torches, a meaningful number in Hawaiian belief. And among these deities, the goddess Hi'i'aka is a notable figure which symbolizes the diverse nature of these ghostly precisions. And legends speak of ancestral spirits within the ranks who can protect their living descendants by claiming them as their own. And these revered spirits of the night marchers are said to be especially present during the new moon and around locations steeped with uh, cultural significance, like Heiau Caves and places that were once exclusively accessed by the Ali alone. In Anawahu, presence of their or whispers of their presence has been reported in places such as um, Kaawa Valley, Yokohama Bay, 
Kani Akapupu, uh, Kaina Point, Kalama Valley, and Waimanalo. I think you did great. Yeah! I will say, <laughs> I will say I'm pretty sure the actual name, though, is Hukaipo. Not, not Powell. Hukaipo? Okay. Hukaipo. That's fine. Hukaipo. I don't know. I did pronunciation.com and I was like, yeah, I think it's just the pronunciations may be wrong. Or it's just Po. Like, I think it's just Po. P-O. Po. But anyway, anyway, you nailed that. So whether one regards these stories as authentic pieces of Hawaiian heritage or just dismisses them as mere folklore, the advice stays the same throughout generations. And that is tread carefully and respect the past. Yeah, that's the tea. I feel like you should go um, do that anywhere where there have been indigenous people um, who have been displaced um, by colonialism. The bar is on the floor, and yet we still dislodge sacred sites with our butts. Like, terrible. So local traditions warn that by disrespecting these spirits, um, by failing to show reverence, like you are pretty much signing a death warrant for a gruesome uh, demise, which you deserve. Um, and the correct response per tradition is to not only lie prone, but you're supposed to face the earth as a sign of respect, which should technically allow you to avoid harm. And some articles that I pulled even said that you should pee yourself to show how weak you are in hopes that they'll think you're too pathetic to kill. <laughs> I and think I'm they fine. just added that in front of a ghost. I think they just added that for funsies. So either way, it's I think they should. They're like, yeah, let, that's how you know that. Like, make the mainlanders piss themselves. Honestly, exactly. we deserve it. And even we deserve even less so. So even accidentally encountering these processions doesn't mean that you'll even be spared that way either. As locals believe that you should, first of all, be educated enough to know that the moon cycles mean that these are more likely to become prevalent. That's when the warriors take their walks. And they also believe that you should just pay attention to your surroundings. If you can't hear the preceding war drums, you can't feel the ominous air and you don't pick up on the smell of death like you kind of deserve it yeah be aware put the gopro down you know be real might go off you're gonna have to put it in your pocket and be late i'm so fucking sorry like i hate to say it can't be playing pokemon go you can't be playing pokemon go and you can't be on instagram live you just can't you can't be filming a tiktok you just gotta you know be fucking aware Mm -hmm. So luckily for the locals, and thank God, because they deserve something that benefits just them, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a silver lining around some of these ethereal encounters. Because remarkably, those who are recognized as descendants of the warriors in the procession are said to be spared from from, such gruesome deaths. Because a spirit who recognizes their kin will shout Nahu, which means Nahu, which means mine, signalizing other marchers to pass without harming them. How fucking cool would that be? Just you think you're gonna get trampled by like a ghost army, and then they're like, "No, no, no, he's cool. He's with me." And you're like, "Oh, fucking god, fine." Yeah, you're like, "Oh my god, whoo, whoop!" You're like there in like your full Etnies gear and like your Fubu, and you're just being a bastard, and you're like, "Yeah, that's mine. What's up?" (laughs) Terrible, and then they're like, "Oh god," it just reminds me of like any scene from. Like any ancestral movie where like they're like, oh my god, I have to deal with this shithead. And it's just yeah. like it's upsetting when you fucking teenager yeah. around. It's upsetting when you uh see what present day ancestral lines look like, you know. They're probably Dude, out the fact- tagging a fucking hospital in at and Baggy <laughs> Jenkos. It's upsetting. Like the fact that we had ancestors who survived the most brutal of things throughout history, like there's nothing that they escaped. Right. Like mm-hmm. we had to have had ancestors that went through the Black Plague. We had to have ancestors who fought off fucking cave bears. Uh, we had to have had ancestors who like beat out the um, Neanderthals to procreate with Cro Magnons. And then there's us, like you and me specifically. Do you <laughs> yeah, think they'd be disappointed? Big time. Oh, absolutely. Like I went to put a ponytail holder in my hair and it broke and I cried. Mm. I was going to say, I went to put my hair up in a ponytail and it hurt so much that I said, well, I guess I wear my hair down from now on. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's weakness. That's weak. That's weak genes. That's upsetting. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're also, though, you know, here's the thing about that. Yes, I agree. I agree to all of the above. Right. But it's very much the same of like, 
yeah, they may look at us and be like, that's pathetic. Milk and a fucking cat would kill these two fucks. That's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? But it's the trend of like, what would kill a Victorian child? Like, yeah, they may look at me and think that I'm pathetic with my dietary restrictions. But also, if they had a, li- a fucking lick of Frank's Red Hot, they would die immediately on the spot. So Probably. what's, Actually, what's that's up with about. that? You know? If I they can digest saw me, processed wheat, motherfucker. Exactly. Get if they saw me open up my fucking iPhone and respond to a text message, they would self-emoliate. They would light themselves on fire. Yeah. So, you know. It's true. There's give also, and take. We, we survived a global plague. We did. I mean, barely, girl. Fucking barely, bitch. But oh yeah. God emotionally not so much but if you were to take a scan of my brain right now it would look like swiss cheese from the amount of times my body beat covid yeah mine would just look like canned peas unappealing (laughs) kind of gross and probably molded i have long covid for sure in the sense of like my body has never functioned right and my brain will never be the same yeah because i got the johnson and johnson curse yeah. Mm, I got the Pfizer. I yes. got the double shot. As far as I'm concerned, mine isn't even real and was never real. I got a booster and everything, but that original, when I first got it, you know, that OG, that OG shit. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Lord. I remember you texting me and you're like, I just saw Jesus. <laughs> I was like, is this Noel? It like fucked you up. Oh, I was like, because the reason why I got Johnson and Johnson is because I have a, um, you know, I have an immune system issue. And so I was able to be the guinea pigs just to go around and get that first shot. And when I inevitably, unfortunately got it and thankfully was vaccinated, um, because I don't even want to know what it would have looked like if I was not vaccinated and got it. I was just in bed shivering shaking and leaking from every orifice in my body i had Mm -hmm. the worst migraine known to man it was horrific and i've been sick before to the point where i'm like hospitalized and have like ivs and nothing came close to just fucking sweating out covid dude that shit was Mm -hmm. fucked uh i think i took dayquil and then i went back to work and i was fine you could have taken the mucus out of my lungs and used it as cement to build a house of bricks. Oh, yeah, you got sick. And then all three is crazy because you, me, and Ichabod all got COVID at the same time at mm-hmm. three completely separate events. Yep. Yep. And Which then we had wild. to not then we had to not go to a concert. We couldn't go to Orville Peck. We're responsible. We're fucking responsible, I bitch. I know. All of us just like going through the moral discussion of whether or not we should go to Orville Peck and then we're yeah. like it would be fucked up if we did so we didn't but even just the conversation that should never be leaked I know uh, but we didn't know. go so it's fine. we stayed home and suffered yep I stayed home in my misery and watched everyone go to the concert but guess what I didn't do that day contribute to any of you fucking assholes getting COVID, even though you probably deserved yeah. it because I bet you still went to the fucking concerts and I yeah. bet you still went to the fucking grocery store. <laughs> didn't wash your fucking dirty little hands. You scumbags. That's why I, that's why I got sick because you stupid fucks were like, Oh, this is probably just a sinus infection. I'm not getting in tested. And then you come around me and my paper thin fucking immune system. Fuck mm-hmm. you. Fuck you. Fuck you. If you still are that stupid piece of shit in the, you know, year of our Lord, 2023, basically 2024, and you go out and about knowingly sick, you should hurt yourself really bad. <laughs> you should hurt yourself <laughs> yeah, really bad. You tell them. Yeah. <laughs> um, go get the Johnson Johnson shot. That's punishment. Yep. Yep, but anyway. Uh, (laughs) So another way of circumventing any night visits from these night marchers is said to be uh, made possible by encircling one's home with tea plants, which is a practice believed to keep malevolent malevolent forces at bay. Um, And there's a little picture of them. Aren't they so cute? They actually are super pretty. Yeah, they just kind of look like red miniature palm trees. So Uh, the nature of their march. Kind (laughs) of. That's an interesting way to describe it. 
They remind me of um, the, for anyone, speaking of COVID, for anyone who got super into plants during COVID, it reminds me of a pink princess. That's what it reminds me of. The pink princess philodendron. That's what it kind of looks like to me. But But they wouldn't survive here in Utah. So don't you looked it up? Yeah, they only live in like warm, very moist climates. So they would only survive here if you had like um, a greenhouse. Probably, yeah. Just like our pitcher plants. I know. Oh, that sucks so bad. Noelle and I had the most beautiful pitcher plants, and even like buying special water firm and everything, I could not keep mine alive. And I babied that thing. Well, it's because we so, live in Utah where okay. there is no such thing as yeah. moisture. So unless you built a yeah. physical greenhouse or mm-hmm. one of the like indoor terrariums for it, that baby's yeah. gone. Ugh, such a bummer. Anyway. Oh, you know, it's weird. I buy these plants and they're supposed to be hardy. And then I get this monstera from Walmart on clearance because it's half dead. And that thing is thriving. Yeah, that so. bitch is huge. It has grown tendrils out to like brace itself. Yeah, you have to get it a moss pole so it could grow up. No, I have want you it to ever, just grow wild and free. No, you've got to give it a moss pole. Have you ever seen a monstera out in the wild? I like, have not personally, no, well, but I have I wouldn't the even, I wouldn't even call it out in the wild. There was I was in Playa Vista, California, <laughs> peak COVID, <laughs> peak everyone fighting over plants. And outside of the movie theater in Playa Vista was a monstera that was the size of the fucking building and i was like wow they're so beautiful yeah it was crazy but anyway you can go on all right i gotta close the monstera image searching it back to the episode like they're so beautiful so the nature of their march be it resonant with the sounds of war veiled in silence reflects the preferences of the chief they once served so that you can detect which region they're coming from depending on like the war drums that they used. But let's dive into some of the history of these night marchers along with some interesting historical encounters. So with no written Hawaiian language at the time the Europeans arrived, the chilling tales of the night marchers remain technically unrecorded um, until the late 19th century. And the earliest written account from 1883 chronicles eyewitnesses who reported the phantom processions believed to follow King Kamehameha. 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 Mm -hmm. The great spirits um, on the Big Island. (laughs) And these accounts are not isolated. Many in Hawaii insist that these apparitions are more than mere myths. And it was actually pretty cool. If you Google these, you will see like torches through... um, the mountainsides of Hawaii, like these like phantom lights that come through. And uh, it was actually pretty cool. I tried to find a video of one, but the YouTube stuff was mostly just interviews that I saw of people saying like, yeah, oh, I've seen yeah. them. They're totally real. Look at that. It's literally like a, par- like a parade of people. Mm-hmm. You can barely see the outlines of them, but you can clearly see torch lights. Yeah. And it was really interesting because there's lots of phantom lights like all over the world and these just so happen to be Hawaii's, but it's so much cooler, I think, because we've talked about stuff like the Huron lights, but those are literally just phantom lights where these are like full processions with torches. And so they kind of take on a fully different tier of um, like the phenomenon of like phantom lights out in the wild. Well, it makes sense to me because like what, when you have like that residual energy, you know what I mean? Cause like, that's where I fall with my understanding and appreciation of like ghosty, ghosty woasties mm-hmm. is um, it's all energy based. Like that's even my idea of what I understand, like the human soul, quote unquote, it's just energy. You know what I mean? And it cannot yeah, be created. It, it can destroyed. be neither created nor destroyed. Exactly. And in some cases it could get stuck and have these residual energies, which you could call a haunt if you want. Um, And some of the most like profound, I think solid examples of like paranormal activity are in like civil war battlefields and like seeing the actual like reenactment, not reenactments, like, but you know, the replayings of these, um, of these like fights and battles. And I feel like it's the same concept, but in a different font for the night marchers, like this Uh residual energy of um, wartime 
that keeps replaying over and over again. Yeah, very highly charged incidents like go marching to war is not mm-hmm. going to be something that's going to be a calming event. Like it's going to have residual energy that just imprints on an area. Yeah, I would agree. So across the islands, there have been unnerving reports of torchlight processions descending mountainsides, even in the most inaccessible regions. And while some assert that the night marchers leave footprints, others believe that they actually got glide over the earth, it, therefore being completely traceless. So the scholarly work, The Phantom Night Marchers in the Hawaiian Islands by Catherine Luamala, penned in 1983, details the lore of the night marchers, um, the Huaki Po. I said that right that time. Yeah, I think so. uh, that has, Okay, that has been recorded since the 1800s, but undoubtedly the tales were shared orally long before then. So Luamala's exploration actually uncovered the earliest written mention of the night marchers that we brought up earlier in 1883, which actually described the spectral sightings of King Kamehameha. Yeah. Damn. Boom. I told myself, if I can do, like, Snaefel Sjorkel and all those fucking Icelandic words, I can do Hawaiian. Um, it's way easier. Blowing every blood vessel in my eyeball to do it, um, because I think I'm breaking my own brain by trying to do it phonetically when I should just do it. Uh, yeah, like, but really, anyway. <laughs> even your phonetic writing is a little bit harder than what it actually is. Because even just, like, look at King King Amamea. It's right there. Ma, ha, yeah, ha. Like, Miha, like it's right there. Yeah. It's so easy. I'm like, I'm out of yourself, girl. So, but there are still some that I can't fucking get on the yeah. first try, so I don't blame you. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing my best. So King Kamehameha, uh also known as King Kamehameha the Great, was the first ruler to not unite all of the Hawaiian islands under one monarchy. Mm-hmm. He was born in the mid-18th century. The exact date is subject to debate. And his exact birthday is also not, or birthplace is also not definitely known. Um, but there are several locations that have claimed to be his birth site, according to various sources. And he is actually one of Hawaii's most important historical figures. He is known as establishing the kingdom of Hawaii in 1810, and for his series of uh, very successful campaigns that actually brought the islands together. And King Kamehameha was known for his military prowess his leadership skills, and his ability to unite the Hawaiian Islands through both force and diplomacy. He also instituted the Law of the Splintered Paddle, which protected civilians in times of war and ensured the safety of non-combatants. And he also had, a like most of his concern for the people was reflected in the policies that like lived long after he, after he died. Wow, and, I love that. A little refugee <laughs> safety plan. Mm-hmm. And the details of Kamehameha's death are somewhat vague, as are most historical accounts at that time. But it is generally believed that he died somewhere around May 8th in 1819 in Kalua, Kona, on the island of Hawaii. And the cause of his death is also not known, but most people do believe that it was natural causes. And he was thought to be in his late 50s or early 60s at the time of his death, which was actually a pretty advanced age for that era. Um, there's no record of him suffering a violent death or being killed in battle. And his legacy is celebrated annually on June 11th, um, known as King Kamehameha Day, which is a state holiday in Hawaii. And another tale that time tells of a deadly march supposedly led by Kamehameha's nephew, um, which came to be known as the Trail of Death. And his nephew was known as Liho Leo. Mm-hmm. Who was better known as Kamehameha II? Oh, there you um, go. <laughs> so Kamehameha II's reign began after the death of his uncle, the King Kamehameha the Great, in 1819. And while there actually isn't a really specific trail of death that is widely recognized or documented in historical accounts directly associated with King uh, Kamehameha II, his reign did mark significant and tumultuous changes in Hawaii society. One of the most notable events during his short reign was the end of the traditional kapu system, the ancient Hawaiian code of conduct for social and religious observance, which had governed Hawaii life for centuries. And the breaking of the kapu system by Kamehameha II and his mother, Queen uh, Ka'ahumano, 
uh, led to a period of upheaval and eventual transition in Hawaiian society. And this included the dismantling of the heiau or temples or heiau in te- or temples and the cessation of many other religious practices. Um, in short is when the missionaries came. Mm-hmm. Does this, um, do you think that, cause I didn't, unlike my sister, I did not get to participate in, um, Hawaiian history study. Do you think that the nephew's kind of like upheaval of traditions came because he was trying to break bread with the missionaries? Or was um, it worse because of the missionaries? I think that it was in response to the missionaries because they brought diseases, which the it, it was essentially like he was just trying to handle Hawaii's version of what the Europeans did to South America with like the smallpox blankets. Like there was a huge high mortality rate among the native population. Um, And I just think he didn't know how to deal with it. Like, how do you deal with something like that? Honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was so much death and destruction during his reign. That's where the trail of death actually led, you know, like that's where it came from because a lot of people thought it was, caused by him it aligned with his timeline and there was so much loss of life and cultural changes in hawaii um that it gets blamed on him but if we're really being honest i'm going to say it was because of the missionaries and you can even see that if you look at the traditional wear in hawaii throughout the decades like you can see even with like mormon missionaries let's be honest when they came to the island i think in like the 50s um Native Hawaiians in the Luau totally changed the way that they dressed. And it wasn't even until like a couple de- decades ago that they started to go back to actual roots and weren't worried about like the modesty that missionaries imposed on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I wish that we had more written history, but. Well, I mean, isn't it the tale as old as time? Um, yeah. The colonizers, the colonizers come through and destroy any artifacts in history and lore and all you get is their bastardized version of it. Yep. So. And Kamehameha the second died really young, probably about the age 27, from measles during a visit to England in 1824, where he had gone on a state visit to meet King George IV. His early death was part of the broader impact of foreign contact on the Hawaiian Islands, which obviously brought new diseases and even more societal changes. But Kamehameha II can be seen in the processions of the night marchers, and his torch actually shines just as brightly as his royal uncle's. Good for him. A little redemption. Yeah, I know. What a bummer. Um, in her study, uh, Lua Mala recounts the compelling testimony of a fisherman named Pepe Akeo, whose brush with the night marchers still lingers in local lore. And Pepe Akeo and a companion were fishing off the coast of Maokona, at probably around 10 p.m., they estimate when they heard the distant sound of a conch shell. Remember, this is one of the predecessors of what you hear before you actually see them. Mm-hmm. And initially, they shrugged it off as the wind, but the sound came again and again, and it got closer each time. And as it got closer, it brought with it a sense of unease. And with a third and unmistakably blast, loud blast of the conch, they turned to see a procession of torches moving along the island shore. And remembering the fishermen's tales of the night marchers, Neither man dared to confront the apparitions. Instead, they followed the Lord of the Letter. They laid face down on the ground, weapons aside, um, as a full act of respect and deference to the procession. And Pepe Akeo would recount that they did lay motionless, mere yards away from the sandy path as the marchers passed. The rhythmic thumping of a drum marked their progress. And even as the figures had gone, the men stayed down, not daring to rise until the fading light of the torches and the distant conch shells sounds assured them that the marchers had definitely moved on. And these tales of the night marchers aren't confined to the distant past. Many such encounters have been reported over the years, with some of the most fascinating are actually dating from the 20th century. Take, for instance, a 1930s episode in Waikiki, where a tourist unfamiliar with local folklore spotted unusual lights pacing along the seaside. After sharing his experience with residents, he was enlightened about the night marchers and their sacred journeys to ancestral um, ceremonial sites. And then there was a 1940s account of several fishermen who observed that what they believed to be ancient warriors, with their torches flickering across the water, eventually reaching the shore and ascending a hill in a time-honored burial site. 
In a similar vein, a doctor, an outsider to the islands, assisted the, um, enlisted the assistance of a Hawaiian woman educated on the mainland to witness these mystic marches. And their experience was profound. They saw the spectral army, their torches alight, with features that were pretty nearly discernible. They observed the phantoms cross the water and climb a hill, where the sound of drum beats echoed, further affirming that the tales of the night marchers timeless passage. And Luamala's research also touches on the notion that these spectral marches might warn off the future death of, or might warn of the future death of somebody linked to the land on which they traverse, giving the night marchers another role as harbingers of death or omens of future tragedies. Hmm. I know, isn't that so cool? I love that. Okay. I love a good omen. I know. Oh, we don't really have that many. I mean, maybe like a dark dog, a black dog, a crow. Yeah, but okay. even those are like, even any omens, like superstitial omens we have that have translated to like North American culture and like on the US mainland are obviously stolen, but also they've been bastardized to be um, like negative in such a profound way that they say, you know, yeah. in the month of October, don't let your fucking black cat or black dog like out of the house. You know what I mean? And like, that's right? not cool. Yeah. Like, that's no, not cool. Not. You should have reverence of omens, not um, fear and yeah. want to uh, fucking yeah. kill. Right. Um, but yet, all we know is death and destruction. So. Yes, ma'am. So, a poignant illustration of this idea comes from a World War I era incident in Waianani, where a family witnessed the procession of ghostly warriors clad in their traditional helmets and feathered capes passing by their home. Knowing the legends, they interpreted this as an omen for their son who was fighting in Europe. And sadly, this interpretation proved accurate when they later learned of his death in France. Mm. The narrative took an even more personal turn when the soldier's mother saw the night marchers again years later. And this time she took it as a sign of her own impending death, and eerily she did pass away within two days. In a similar vein, a procession in 1917 in the region of Kau. Yeah, I think so. Is that right? <laughs> seemed to serve as a somber escort. The day after the sighting, it was announced that the former queen, <sighs> Liliuokalani, Liliuokalani, had died. Intriguingly, her ancestors had deep ties to the area where the march had occurred, which lent a sense of ancestral farewell to the event. And Lopaka Kanu, Kapanui, a priest in Kahuna, well-versed in the island traditions, warns against anyone seeking out the night marchers, as doing so would bring about pretty severe peril. Mm. He cautions against actions as seemingly innocuous, such as whistling in the dark. We're starting to get a little Appalachian Classic. folklore crossover. Classic. Um, because whistling in the dark might inadvertently call forth these spectral figures. It is common practice amongst many islanders to plant the tea plants around their homes, as we mentioned earlier, which would divert these phantom processions from their path. And Kapa Nui recounts a personal encounter of his own on a ghost tour that he was leading in a Chinese cemetery, notorious for being on the route of the night marchers. And he describes an intense moment where, despite the visible movement of trees and grass, there was an uncanny silence and a suffocating heat enveloped him. A sign, he was later told, that an ancestral warrior was amongst the marchers, providing him with protection. Ooh, and just, no, isn't that so cool? Um, and despite his safe encounter, Kapa Nui emphasized that anyone who might find themselves in the presence of the night marcher should leave immediately. He also advises against attempting to photograph or video these apparitions, suggesting that some of these experiences are meant to be respected and not captured. Oh, I do like that. I do think that is the tea of them. It feels respectful. It's it feels mm -hmm. um, ancient. It feels ancestral. It feels not. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't feel evil or bad. It just like is. Yeah. And the fact that there are things to do if you do encounter them and it's mostly just like lay down and be respectful because that's what you're supposed to do when they were alive. Like if you encountered like one of these, um, what was it? Ali's. If you, yeah. If you encounter like an Ali in real life, like during their reign, you're supposed to like lay down and bow. And we do the same thing to like the fucking monarchy. We bow as signs of respect. And so like, just to continue that on and you just lay there and you throw your weapons aside. I'm all for it. Yeah. And the fact that like, if your ancestor is close to you at the torch, you can feel warm. That's also insane. I know. That's so cool. That's so fun. Um, awesome. How, 
How cool. Yeah, just a I, little Hawaiian folklore to get you by. I do love that. I do love Hawaiian folklore. Um, and I feel like we would have to give it some more because there's so much of it because obviously um, the islands are rich with culture and mm-hmm. ancestry and yeah. um, they have such reverence for the earth and into like earthly gods and deities. Like even like Pele is the, I, I don't, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like, I don't know if it's fire or just like the volcano, but it's, it's like the giver and the taker away. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and so much so where like when volcanoes erupt, they, you know, understand the tragedy, but also can respect the cleansing. Cause like, that's the entire buildup of the islands. Like before, yeah. Before humanity even understood science, the Hawaiians, the native Hawaiians understood that the land that they lived on came from the volcano, therefore like the giver of life. Um, Yeah, it's it's super cool. It's really interesting, like to even pull up Hawaiian folklore. There's so much to to it. And we we just picked one story out of it. Um, but yeah, there's like Maui's great battle with the sun, which was the birth of the summer season. Um, some of these other ones, there's like the green lady and the child snatcher. That one would be fun to do. Well, like the thing um, about like native Hawaiian um, culture and like ancestry and lore, if you will, is like it. it's a kissing cousin of like Greek mythology in my white opinion of like understanding and trying to make connections. It reminds me of that. Like the lore is based around tangible things that they experienced and saw every day. And the difference is that like they were such a rich and vibrant culture fairly recently in the, you know, in the blip of time, you know, how, how in the grand, the grand scheme of time and understanding of time and the passage of it, the reign of native Hawaiian culture before colonization was so recent that even despite missionaries and colonizations best efforts to destroy it it still is there and it's still like really rich whereas like we have lost pieces of other um you know cultures with similar similar ideology where we've kind of like had to piece it together but we still have like a talking history um of of native people in hawaii so it would be super cool to learn about it more yeah it'd be something I'd be totally down to dive into some of the, some more of this stuff, even to do like a part two, like full Hawaiian folklore episode yeah. would be really cool. If there's anyone listening who is um, born and raised native Hawaiian and knows a little bit about the culture and lore, please reach out to us. We please do. And now. also we still have, we still have our, if you go to our link tree on our Instagram, we still have like ways to donate because I think like the devastation of like the fires that happened in Hawaii got so swept under the rug because of just the media cycle. But that devastation is going to take a long time to recover from. I mean, even as of last week, some um, friends from Lahaina where the fires took place on Maui, they were just able to last week, just able to go back to the sites of where their homes were and start sifting through um, kind of the wreckage and the rubble and the ash to see what's left. So um, it's the, it's still the biggest disaster they the islands have seen. Um, and there's, it's, it's just still rubble and ash right now. And they even like on Maui's like, on all of the Maui websites, it's like, I you can't stress enough the importance of supporting the people going through like this yeah. experience because they still have yet to receive um, any sort of assistance from the federal government. And even though the fires are 100% contained in Lahaina, the, the smoke and dust advisories are in full effect constantly. Um, yeah. It's so sad. Yeah. So even like, even though the fire is under control, the air quality because of the debris and ash and dust in the air, um, it makes it not safe for a lot of people. So, yeah. And then I they still had like unsafe water advisories. So, um, yeah, still totally still, unforgotten. Yeah. Yep. So yep. sad. Still donate if you can. So, 
Um, just another, you know, another thing to add to the list of what we could have done with the $100 billion that um, the United States government decided to hand over to um, the to Israel. It, it could have been not even a noticeable decimal to take just a little bit of that money and help um, the people of Maui, Hawaii. Um, Seriously, and course, help our citizens and not yeah. contribute to uh, genocide. genocide. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And there would have been so much left to, well, I don't know, give citizens of the United States health care to, I think they said it would take $20 billion to end um, homelessness in the United States. And, you know, we still got money left over. Um, No, we're not going to do that. So So, Hmm. it's disheartening. Um, so, so on a lighter note, um, actually, no, in the same disheartening note, the link is still in our bio to donate because this is still a natural disaster that our government has decided to turn a blind eye to, like many of the other natural disasters this government faces, um, or this country faces, I mean. Um, and in that link tree, you can also find a link to our merch, where 100% of the proceeds are donated. We also have a link to our Patreon. A dollar gets you in. Just a simple little dollar once a month, and you can listen to new episodes every week. We also have a link to Kelly Holloran or at Wildwood Owl on Etsy. She makes cool shit for us, and she makes cool shit in general. We have a link to our Discord server, which I'm so sorry I haven't been active on it lately, but I will be. I will be better about it, I promise, because we also have a link to our Facebook group, which is, I think dead i never want to go to facebook ever again the only thing good about <laughs> facebook is facebook marketplace even though chelsea has found like a new revival in facebook i see her posting like a fucking boomer i'm like oh my. that's how i found out that she had watched ahsoka was she posted a meme <laughs> on meme. facebook with no context other than the picture and i was like wow she's really showing her age her face might not show it but her facebook activity does yeah i just shared uh yeah i've actually been sharing a lot damn Shared the new Avatar trailer on my Facebook. Shared on a cute Christmas sweater. Mm-hmm. You um, must be and stopped. I need, yeah, later I'm going to do like a fundraiser so I can get some new tennis balls from the bottom of my walker. Because, you know, yeah, mine are all worn out with age. Old. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm going to say... What am I going to hail? Yeah, I'm going to say well, hail this delicious wine that got left at my house. Mm-mm-mm. That is a good hail. I'm going to say hail, you know, if there's one thing that represents decadence and luxury and self-indulgence like warming up day-old macaroni and cheese in the microwave, it would be no one, it would be it would be controlled by no one other than the number one hail Satan. You said it. So. Let's get the hell out of here. Let's get the hell out of here. Bye. Bye.